Little honeybees flying around, little green peas from the ground, buttermilk biscuits nice and brown. Bring it to the Tennessee farm table, butter beans, peas, beets, and chard, chickens running in the yard, catfish frying in that lard. Bring it to the Tennessee farm table. Cast on skillets, good and hot. Watch it steam and crack and pop. Cornbread bacon in that stove. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Pick them maters, good and ripe. Drop in black gang candy stripes. Look at them loading down those vines. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Bring it to Tennessee Farm Table. Welcome to the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast, a show that is dedicated to the people of the state of Tennessee who produce, prepare, and preserve food and agriculture, often with that Mountain South Appalachian flair. And on occasion, I just might have a guest from our neighbors from surrounding states here in the Southeast. This is your hostess and producer, Amy Campbell. The theme song that you just heard was sung and produced by East Tennessee's own Emmy Sunshine. She's from Madisonville, Tennessee. And today we are setting the table with some special Christmas recipes. We'll hear from Fred Saussman with his Potluck Radio segment, with Margaret Carr and her festive red and green pear salad that her family likes to make this time of year. And we'll also hear from the happily retired Mary Dee Dee Constantine. She's the former food writer for the Knoxville News Sentinel, and she'll share a recipe for warm mulled cider. A fun story from our regional local seed and story-saving friend, John Koykendall, and a neat story from James Beard award-winning food writer, Ronnie Lundy, on the topic of pinto beans. I sure do want to say thank you for tuning in today and being my guest at this big Tennessee table, and let's get started. Today we are setting the table with a question. Why do we all eat pinto beans? Today in our Appalachian region, the term soup beans is synonymous with pinto beans. We talk a lot about saving heirloom varieties of beans on this show, and with so many varieties of heirloom beans that have been handed down by Native Americans and kept alive by generations of people living in the mountains, how did pintos become the default bean for the Appalachian table? As told by food writer Ronnie Lundy, it involves coal camps, coal mining, labor riots, the company store, and the loss of the ability to garden, save seed, and maintain food sustainability. Here's that James Beard award-winning writer, Ronnie Lundy, an author of Vittles, An Appalachian Journey with Recipes, to shed some light on this topic. You know, there's the great mystery of, of why we eat pinto beans, which we don't know the answer to, for sure, because pintos are a Mesoamerican southwestern bean. We have a gazillion varieties of beans that could be, you know, those beautiful cranberry beans and the Christmas beans and blah, 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 you know. And, and, and you know, if you had, if, if you grew up 
when I did and you had relatives who were growing their dried beans, your soup beans would be brown or red, but they wouldn't necessarily be pintos, you know. Um, But pintos, Bill Best believes that, um, and Sherry Castle was the person who started trying to track this down, um, and she ended up talking to Bill, and Bill believes that in the Depression, um, uh, pinto beans became like such a commodity. They became so inexpensive compared to the work of planting and growing that people just started substituting pinto beans. And they would have been, they obviously, maybe not obviously, they logically would have been the bean that would have been available in work camps, in logging camps, and in mining stores, because those corporations who ran those stores would buy the pintos in bulk, you know, where you wouldn't buy a smaller bean. I mean, the pintos were the ones that could be grown um, in, in the sort of um, more corporate agriculture way, you know, on the bigger farms as opposed to in your small garden. And so they, they replaced, they became the bean of, of choice, you know, for people because they were so available and they taste really good, but they're not actually native to Appalachia. Boy, that is edifying. It makes me wonder, too, the life in the mining camp itself. No room for a little garden. No time to tend the garden. Well, let me, let me correct some of that for you because here's, part, here's a piece of, of what went on. Yes. In, the, in the early mining towns, and uh, David Allen Corbin has this book. Here we go, Life, Work, and Rebellion in the Coal Fields. It's terrific. Anyway, when he was writing, so at the time of Blair Mountain, initially there are coal camps and there is a company store but the people in the coal camps the women in the coal camps planted gardens and and they would keep an animal sometimes they keep a milk cow or pig or something like that so they would not be fully dependent on the company store and there's a a quote in here um, it's in Vittles too but one of them the national mine organizers talks about the fact that the miners on strike in eastern Kentucky and West Virginia and Southwest Virginia are better fed and healthier because they have their gardens. Well, what starts to happen then is that when the miners go on strike, the, um, the thugs come in and they throw the family out of their houses right that there would be tent camps people would have their tent camps but they would also have you know they would bring their harvest or whatever but they throw the people all their stuff onto the street and then they destroyed they broke all the canned goods and they destroyed the garden and either confiscated or killed the animals so that people would not be able to eat and then as time went on you know as we come into the more modern era um, you're first of all the polluted conditions of the cold camps didn't allow you to have that kind of garden and you didn't have that kind of space they learned to not give you space so that you would be dependent on the company store more dependent on the company store just absolutely handicap people's ability to feed themselves and much less grow and save right. Christmas 
yeah feed or clothe or or you know do anything for themselves you know that's such good history to know yeah and it's history that's been suppressed I mean it has been consciously you know one of the things that I do but when I speak um first of all I usually ask people if they know Blair Mountain Mm-hmm. And it's astonishing how many people in Appalachia have no idea what I'm talking about. Mm. And to not, I mean, Blair, Blair Mountain should be understood in American history. It is the largest armed labor uprising in the history of the United States. And, and it's, it, until recently, has not even been taught in West Virginia or Kentucky schools. I wasn't taught about it. I didn't know about it. Oh, that is, uh, that's telling. Yeah. Yeah. Better, yeah, no, no, no. I mean, we don't, we don't know our labor history. And then the other, the other person that I've been talking about is asking people if they've heard of Ella Mae Wiggins. And nobody has, you know. And she, she was born in Bryson City, um, North Carolina. Wiley Cash's book, The Last Ballad is about her and that's what you need to get and read it because he does a beautiful job of writing about her and you are listening to the tennessee farm table podcast and broadcast and you've just heard from two-time james beard award-winning food writer ronnie lundy on why we all eat pinto beans in her discussion she made mention of several people like sherry castle a fellow food writer who's chasing down the story of why we all eat pinto beans, and Ronnie referenced Blair Mountain, meaning the Battle of Blair Mountain, and the book that she referenced is entitled Life, Work, and Rebellion in the Coal Fields, The Southern West Virginia Miners, 1880-1922, through 1922, by David Corbin. Links to all of my show's guests and topics, including Ronnie, Sherry Castle, and David Corbin's book, are all listed on my website, TennesseeFarmTable.com. Yep, you can find all of them with those links and connect to all of them there, along with this fella, East Tennessee-based heirloom seed saver John Koigendahl. Here is John with a cute little story about a young fella and his feelings about eating beans almost every meal. But this one pea I have right here is called the Bradham Stock Pea. It dates to 1870 down in Georgia. And that came from uh, this family. And this old fellow was telling me the story. He said, when I was about eight years old, every day we had peas. Mom would make that little bowl of peas for me, and I had my piece of cornbread. They might have had some sweet potato or something else. But anyway, he said, one day I rebelled. I sat down and had a big frown on my face. I looked at that bowl of peas and took that bowl of peas and I pushed it away. And Mama asked, what's the matter, son? And I said, I ain't eating no more peas. I'm tired of them. Well, his daddy just looked at him and he said, that's all right, son. You'll eat them tomorrow. <laughs> In other words, that's what it's going to be. <laughs> that was that. The choice. That was the choice. <laughs> That's a good story, John. Well, you know, most of these old peas that we have here, they all have stories because I've gotten them from old-timers, people I've known years and years ago. And that was John Koigendahl, seed saver, artist, and East Tennessee resident. And John has a book out. 
It is called Preserving Our Roots, My Journey to Save Seeds and Stories. And uh, this sure would make a good Christmas present. And always, I've got links to all of this and my guests at TennesseeFarmTable.com. And here's Shane Atkins with the song Beans and Taters off his CD, Stomping Ground. And after Shane, we'll hear from Fred Sossman with his potluck radio segment with Margaret Carr and her festive red and green pear salad that her family likes to make this time of year. My folks lived out in the woods. We didn't have a lot of money, but we eat real good. We had corn and tomatoes and turnip greens, beans and taters, taters and beans. Working all day in the field hauling hay means a whole lot of sweat and very little pay. But it's all worthwhile when the dinner bell rings for the beans and taters, taters and beans. I'd grow wings to get the pinto beans with chow chow on the side. And I never was late for a big old plate of taters country fried. You can have shrimp and caviar None of that stuff won't get you too far Won't stick to your ribs if you know what I mean Like beans and taters, taters and beans Tell you about my grandma, that's the cookinest gal what you ever saw. See, down my way, she's known as the queen of the beans and taters, taters and beans. Puts them on early on an old wood stove, the simmer all day and cook real slow. When the taters are done, we're on the scene for beans and taters, taters and beans. I'd grow wings to get the pinto beans with chow chow on the side. And I never was late for a big old plate of taters country fried. If you want your kids to grow up strong, take my advice, you can't go wrong. Put hair on their chest, make them fill out their jeans on the beans and taters, taters and beans. This is Karen Shankles, winner of the 2015 National Cornbread Festival Cook-Off, and you are listening to the Tennessee Farm Table. This is Potluck Radio. I'm Fred Saussman. When Margaret Carr from the Central Community of Carter County, Tennessee, thinks of Christmas, her mother's mid-20th century red and green pear salad immediately comes to mind. Our mother, Maud Shipley, who came of age during the Great Depression, did not let anything go to waste. When she was young, she was a nanny for a family, and during World War II, she worked at Holston Ordnance in Kingsport making RDX an explosive, and later on worked at Jess Larkin's Bakery in Elizabethan. She became a stay-at-home mom at age 42 and began a traditional 1950s, 60s lifestyle for us. She had a way of making everyday things seem special, though. She made bunny cakes at Easter, snowman cakes at Christmas, and every year a decorated birthday cake for my sister and me. 
She grew a garden and canned the produce without the benefit of a pressure canner. August in our house was like a sauna at times. In addition to our garden, we always welcomed gifts of fruits and vegetables from family and friends. I remember getting pears one time, probably from our cousins in Watauga, and of course Mama proceeded to can them. The thing that made them special to us kids was the fact that some of them were red or green. She had added a drop or two of food coloring to make them pretty. These pears were used mostly at Christmas to make pear salad. Pear salad was presented on a small plate with five ingredients. On a bed of lettuce leaves were two or three pears, cottage cheese, mayonnaise, when we discovered Miracle Whip it became Miracle Whip, and grated sharp cheddar. We thought it was the most elegant thing in the world, worthy of the pictures in the Better Homes and Gardens cookbook. She could take very simple ingredients and turn them into masterpieces of flavor and frequently presentation. For Podluck Radio, I'm Fred Sossman. And now it's time for Mary D.D. Constantine. She's that basset hound-loving, grandbaby-chasing, happily retired former food writer for the Knoxville New Sentinel. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. I can't imagine that there's anyone that hasn't heard that phrase. Heck, I can't imagine a mother or father that hasn't said that to their child. I know I've said it to mine, and my mother used to say it to me. But there are a number of variations to that phrase, with the first having occurred in 1913, presented by Elizabeth Wright, who had a Devonian dialect. Now, I have a good old Southern Appalachian dialect, but I am going to try my best to present it the way Elizabeth would have. Her phrases went... Eight a apple a vor Gwen to bed, and you'll make the doctor beg his bread. <laughs> oh well, at least none of us have wound up like poor old Snow White and her apple experience, right? If you're an apple lover like I am, you're going to enjoy this mulled cider recipe that I got from Martha Stewart. It highlights everything that an apple has to offer except the crunch. To prepare it, you need three cups of fresh apple cider, two cups of dry red wine, told you it was good, a half a cup pure maple syrup, one teaspoon whole black peppercorns, one orange or two tangerines sliced, and one medium apple. I prefer using the Granny Smith because of the tartness. Just combine everything in a medium-sized pot, you know, cut up the apple, okay, and then simmer it over medium-low heat for about 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Then you just put it in your favorite warmed mug and snuggle up next to the fire and the ones you love the most and enjoy. This is Mary Constantine with the Tennessee Farm Table.
Thank you so much for joining us here today at the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast. It has been an honor to have your good company. We always love to hear from you on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or through the website, TennesseeFarmTable.com. I'd sure love to hear from you and swap some recipes and stories. Big thanks to Emmy Sunshine of Madisonville, Tennessee, for the musical arrangement and singing and recording of our theme song, for updated appearances, schedule, news, and her new recording. Connect with Emmy Sunshine at TheEmmySunshine.com. We hope you have a good week and keep on digging. This has been a Campbell Creative Incorporated production.